Matthew 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, This week, as I was preparing to teach, I thought about Jesus' audience. And I would imagine that in a crowd that size, there would have been a good combination of followers and Pharisees. And what I mean by that is there were certainly those who were curious and considering whether or not to follow Jesus. They had heard about who he was. They had heard about maybe he's the Messiah. He's a great teacher. Um, He'd been healing people. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? And so uh, maybe they were first-time visitors that day that he gave the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know. Or second-time visitors. But they were curious, and they were hopefully well on their way to believing in him. And then there's those who had been following him for a while because they had heard. They had seen. They had put their faith in him. They did believe upon him and as the Messiah. And, uh, and they were there because they were thirsting and hungering for more. Teach us more. Show us more. We want more of the Lord. And then inevitably, there would have been Pharisees on the scene. There's always Pharisees on the scene. Almost always. He's talking, he's talking, and then he turns to the Pharisees and addresses them. The Pharisees, those experts in truth, the experts in the law, but really they had a form of godliness that was wrapped up in religion. And I think it would be safe to say that today we could have a similar crowd. Maybe you're here this morning because you are curious about the Lord, curious about this Jesus thing. Maybe you're curious about the church. Maybe you're curious about the whole picture. I would say that most of us are here because we are believers and we're part of this church and we're gathered in his name to worship him. We're hungry. We're thirsting and hungering for righteousness. But it could be that you're here because you're a Pharisee. Of course I'm here. This is church. This is where Pharisees are, are at. But maybe, and I say this carefully and, and cautiously, but at the same time, emphatically. But the truth is, is maybe you're dead in religion and you're lacking uh, an alive relationship with Jesus. The good news is, is that I believe that Jesus is talking to everyone, not just everyone in that day, in ancient Israel, at the Sermon on the Mount, but I believe he's talking to everybody here today. Uh, if you're here, he's talking to you. Whichever one of those three that you might be, God is talking to you because he wants everyone to see him. He wants everyone to see God. And if you've ever questioned whether or not the Lord wants to show himself to you, that is, that, is, that is never a question. Of course he does. The question is, do I want to see God? And so that would be my question to you guys this morning. Do you want to see God? So do you want to see God? That's what I'm asking you. Do you want to see God? See, we need to become one of those churches that has hankies that we just pull out on the fly. You know, and a hallelujah. Amen. You know, if nothing else, like a small grunt. Anything to let me know. You're like, eh. You know, like Nick was doing with the pigs, whatever. But that is the question this morning. Do you want to see God? So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, he is immediately, I mean, he's doing all kinds of things. Jesus is always doing multiple things at once. He's a multitasker. But one of the things that he is doing is he is attacking the pharisaical model of godliness that had been on display for a few hundred years. A godliness that was hypocritical. A godliness that was lacking mercy. 
that was lacking true righteousness, a godliness that was lacking humility. This form of godliness that he's addressing had become the standard for those who wanted to be close to God, for those who were pursuing God. The problem is that it was a standard that was based upon outward displays of piety, religiosity, and not based upon any real sense of inner purity. Um, later on in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand, who um, love to pray standing in the synagogues or in the churches and on the street corners to be seen by men. Again, that, that piety, that religious sense of piety. He said, I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. What reward? If you were here a few weeks ago, I read um, another place in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 20, where he says, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into into the kingdom of heaven. And so you put those two verses together, and the reward of those who are pharisaical, that have a form of godliness but deny the power, the reward for them is that they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Another way of saying that is that they will not see God. If I were to give just a blunt statement, pharisaical godliness does not result in seeing God. And then um, I was thinking about this. I couldn't get past the the crowd there, the Pharisees. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but maybe last week. The Pharisees had uh, these ridiculous laws, like 613 laws that they put in place for the people to follow. And they were just laws that they came up with. By the time Jesus got on the scene, those laws, the Pharisaical laws, that system of worship had produced a cold, heartless, arrogant, Form of righteousness. I mean, it was a terrible form of religion. They had to keep coming up with new laws to suit the new situations. Any accountability to God was replaced by accountability to men. And not that there's anything wrong with being accountable to men. We need to be accountable to men, but not only accountable to men. But that was what was replaced. People didn't have, um, they didn't have the ability or even the need to personally discern right from wrong. You guys hear what I'm saying? What's your responsibility in this decision? Well, I'll just follow the pharisaical law, whether it's right or wrong for this person or not. Where's the personal sense of discernment? The whole thing, the pharisaical law, all of that, and this is what Jesus really addresses several times, the whole thing really um, created a spirit of judgmentalism. It was terrible. Uh, The Pharisees themselves were confused about personal preferences versus uh, divine law, what God has to say. There are all kinds of inconsistencies. The standard of righteousness was all whacked out, and it was, it was hurting the Jewish people. God's people was hurting them. And the biggest issue with the whole thing is that Jesus himself despised it, hated it. The one they were waiting for, the Messiah that they had been longing for, Jesus Christ, the big guy, you know what I mean? He hated it. He despised it in in Scripture over and over and over. In all the Gospels, you see him address the Pharisees. Now, all that that I just said describing that, does any of it sound familiar? See, the, the thing is that this wasn't just an ancient Israel problem. This is a Christianity Today problem, isn't it? Did any of things on that list sound familiar? Does it sound like the religious world that sometimes we live in? And listen, Jesus hasn't... He hasn't changed his tune. Our, unless our godliness surpasses that 
of a pharisaical form of godliness, we will not see God in this life or the next. And Jesus is serious about this. Most of us are familiar with that scripture I quoted a while ago in, in 2 Timothy 3.5. It, uh, it talks about men that hold to a form of godliness, but they have denied its power. Denied its power for what? For, for all kinds of things. But one is the power to see God daily in their life. And then obviously to see God at the end of their life when they pass on and go you know, to be in eternity. And it goes on to say, avoid such men that have this kind of godliness, to have this form of godliness. I want you to look real quick. Just turn some pages over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is right kind of in the middle of the chapter is where, or towards the beginning, I suppose, is it's called the eight woes, or maybe in yours it says the eight woes to the Pharisees or of the Pharisees. <clears throat> and we don't have time to read this whole thing, but I want you to see a few things. I, I would encourage you to, to, you can skim through this if you want as I, as I point out a few things, but maybe go back for your own good. Trust me. Go back and read this. Read the eight woes to the Pharisees because Jesus is saying it. The letters are read and it had to be said. And I can't think of any other rhymes. Okay. So a couple of things I want to point out is, first of all, there are five references to spiritual blindness. Okay, remember what we said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall. Okay, and remember I said, inevitably, part of the crowd that he was talking about are Pharisees. which got, Jesus didn't hate the Pharisees, but he sure hated the system that they created um, to replace him as Lord. And so... I want you to think about this. Five times in this, in this eight woes is mentioned um, a spiritual blindness. One of them is in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Another one is in verse 17. You fools and blind men. Uh, another time in verse 19. You blind men. Down in verse 24. And you guys are welcome to circle those or whatever and, and if you want. Verse 24. You blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And then verse 26, it says, says it this way, you blind Pharisees. And so it doesn't take a rocket science to see that Jesus very much equates Pharisaical godliness, the spirit of a Pharisee, as being blind, spiritual blindness. And it's important to know that because Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. But here he's saying there's, there's one people group of people that for sure are blind, and that is the Pharisees. The other thing I want to point out is even in the midst of this, what is obviously negative towards a group of people, a selective group of people, even though it's negative, we can find a positive lesson on how to see God. I can't say that it's a formula per se, but it is definitely a lesson, things that we can take into consideration when we are trying to see God. And again, I don't have time to read all of them, but I want you to look at Matthew 23, verse 25. We'll look at 25, 26, and 27. And 28. (laughs) Here's what it says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup, and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with a whitewashed tomb that on the outside looks beautiful. Just to clarify. Back then, that's what they would do. They would take this mixture of ash and this other stuff, and these tombs were really porous, and they were just kind of ugly that they would use, and they would, they would paint it on there just to make the, the, um, the tombs look nice. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, is that on the inside, there were these holes. That's why they would do it, because it was very, you guys know what porous means, like a sponge, there was holes in it. What they would do is white, uh, whitewash over it so you couldn't see those holes, and it would look more pretty. Again, nothing wrong with a whitewashed tomb. What he's saying is, is you look good on the outside, but on the inside, there are holes. So he says, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28, So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, a couple things... Again, we're going to focus on this one for just a second. But if you'll notice in there, three times it says clean. One time it says unclean. It talks about being clean versus unclean. And so when, you, when Jesus is talking about clean or even in Scripture, it's talking about righteousness. It's talking about purity. It's talking about godliness. It's talking about walking right with God. And so one of the things he's addressing here is cleanliness, cleanliness purity, righteousness, right standing with God, being in a right place. What I want to do is I want to read this one more time through in this version that I have written here. And every time that I say the word outside or inside, I want you just to say, there it is. Okay? Just say, there it is. All right? And feel free to do that. Just relax. Okay? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Anytime I say outside or inside. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. See, this is not an inside versus outside cleanliness. This is an inside plus outside. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were addressing the outside of the tomb, the whitewashing. They were trying to make it look beautiful on the inside, uh, outside, but they were not addressing the voids, the holes that were on the inside. Isaiah 29, which most of us love Isaiah. It's one of the most favorite prophets that we read. So we're familiar with a lot of what he writes. But in verse 13, the Lord said to him, Because this people, or the people of that generation, because this people draw near, that's another way of saying a people that are pursuing, of pursuing godliness, with their mouth and honor me with their lips, which is another way of saying their outward actions, their, uh, their behavior. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, um, while their hearts are far from me. In other words, they, with their lips and with their expressions on the out, outside, they acknowledge and they honor me, uh, honor me. But on the inside, they don't pursue me at all. 
It goes on to say, and their fear of me, and I just say that as, that as their view and their pursuit. The way they view and pursue me is a commandment of men learned by rote. In other words, religious jabber, jabber, jabber. Let me read that one more time. The Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, that's what they do, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear, the way they view me, the way they pursue me, is simply a commandment of men learned by rote. Jabber, jabber, jabber. Religious, religious, religious. Jargon. And so what I want to do really quick is I want to give... And there, and purity, you can come at it from multiple ang- uh, angles. And Melissa and I, as youth pastors, man, we used to do things with our youth group. Um, purity things. We talk about stuff. Sexual purity. All kinds of purity. Promiscuity. All that. But today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe soar above all those things and give some, some backbone to all those other issues. So don't be surprised if I don't say some typical things. But the first thing that I want you to write down is that purity is an internal pursuit. Purity is an internal pursuit. You are a whitewashed tomb, but you're not addressing the inside. Purity is an internal pursuit. And I want you to add this to it. That begins with the heart. Okay, It begins with the heart. Write that down real quick, and I want to give you one more statement to write down. Purity is an internal pursuit that begins with the heart. And I'm going to say this really quick, and then we're going to move past it. Purity does not start with addressing your past. It starts with adjusting your future. And I don't mean that as a, you know, kind of a way. Like, this isn't a pep talk. That sounds like something you'd hear at one of those pep talk conferences. No, I'm going to give you what, what that means. But you've got to get that in your head. Purity does not start with addressing your past. It starts with adjusting your future. See, people get discouraged by the idea of holiness and purity and righteousness because they think they lost their purity somewhere down the road. And I lost my purity. I could never get it back. You don't know what I've done, what's been done to me, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've experienced. And Melissa talked about this with the ladies one of the nights. Listen, you... You didn't lose your purity because you never had it. Scripture says that we were born in sin. We were born with a propensity to sin. We were born with a what Scripture calls a sin nature or a nature that's bent towards evil. Over and over and over in Scripture says that. So if you are somehow trying to regain your purity, you never had it to begin with. Now what might be true is that you may have lost your innocence. But those are two different things. You know, my, my parents... I got a divorce when I was three and a half, and my, uh, my mom um, went through a series of husbands. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that about her, but she did. She went, she, she's like the woman at the well that Jesus saw. Um, come bring your husband. Well, I, I don't have a husband. Um, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. You know, read your mail. Well, that was kind of my mom for various reasons. And growing up early, 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 three, four, five, six years old, really up until early teens, my mom had different husbands. And early on, I can remember seeing all kinds of weird things because none of these guys were believers. My mom wasn't serving the Lord. I saw all kinds of stuff. How many of you have been in that boat? I can remember um, living with my dad whenever I was uh, four, is right, right, or maybe five, when I started kindergarten. I went to kindergarten in first grade at Chapel Hill. We lived at the Village East Apartments. And I was outside, you know, playing with whatever, probably, you know, probably my sticks and rocks, you know, playing with those, 
because it was a long time ago and we were poor. So, um, but I can remember a group of kids, there was kids everywhere in the apartments, you know how that is. And a group of kids were all laughing and giggling and they were running down this hill down into the woods. Well, I mean, obviously I want to go and there was no really rain on me. So I went down and following and I'm trying to keep up with these older kids. You know, they were like at least like third grade. And um, so I went down there and I'm like, what are y'all looking at? And they're kind of huddled over, huddled over. And I, I didn't know what it was then. Obviously I know what it was now, but they were looking at a dirty magazine. And I was like, what are y'all looking at? What are y'all looking at? And so I remember looking at it, and, I, and, and finally one of them goes, <laughs> and handed me a picture. And I remember going, oh, thank you. And it was obviously a very inappropriate picture that I couldn't make heads or tail of, <laughs> literally, you know. Like. And so I kept it because I thought it must be important. But listen, <laughs> turns out it was. You know, in some ways. My point is, is that four or five years old, there was moments, and it had already been, that I was losing bits of my innocence. But my purity, I never had that to, to lose. And so really, what the Lord is doing as he's wooing us, is he is wooing us to a place of regaining what was lost, not in, in my life, but at the fall, Adam and Eve, and that's purity. That's the sin nature. So I just want to dispel that whole thing. There's some of you that are spinning your religious wills to regain your purity. It's not going to happen because you never lost it. You may have lost your innocence, but you're not going to regain purity. You're just simply going to gain purity. You hear what I'm saying? Purity is going to increase in your life because Christ is increasing in your life. You guys can see that picture? So, um, but what I do want to say is purity is an internal pursuit that begins with the heart. This, this backs up before anything else can even be considered. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above. Some of your versions say, set your affections. Set the things that you love or want to love on the things of the Lord, on things above, not on earthly things. Some of yours may actually even say, set your heart Probably not, but some, there might be some versions that say that because mind and heart oftentimes is interchangeable in Scripture. Set your mind. The New Living, Testament, uh, t- uh, New Living Translation says it like this. Think about things of heaven, not the things of earth. We have a, our middle son. I if I had a dollar for every time my wife said this statement, Cannon just had his heart set on fill in the blank. Because my, my middle child, they all feel things very deeply, but my middle child, Canon, dude, when he sets his heart on something, you guys know what that means. That's an idiom that we have. It means to determine to get or to do or to be or to want something. You set your heart on something. When he doesn't get whatever it is that he set his heart on, whether it's doing a project just right or not getting something that he wanted or whatever, man, he gets these big old puppy dog tears that when they let loose, it's like floods. You guys know what I'm talking about? Well, listen, that is what he's saying here. You set your affections, your heart, not on earthly things, but on things above. Psalm 27, 4, we're familiar with this scripture. I think there's a worship song that comes out of it. One thing I ask. How many things? One thing. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. Narrowing it down, apparently. One thing, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. It goes back to Psalm 24 that we're talking about, the holy hill of the Lord. That's the one thing I seek. One thing I seek all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, 
to see God. You guys see that? The one thing I seek is to be in his presence and to see him. Paul kind of echoes the same type of thing for himself. Brothers, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. In other words, I'm not perfect in this whole Jesus thing. But one thing I do, there's that word, one thing. One thing I do, I forget what lies behind. Why? Because it's irrelevant from now on. And I reach toward what lies ahead. I climb. I make the journey. This, that's the foundational scripture of this, other than the, Beata, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, is Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may climb, make the journey to the hill of the Lord, the place where His glory dwells, the place where we will see Him? He who has clean hands, a pure heart, who doesn't lift his soul up to idols. Who may ascend? And then real quick, I want you to turn to James 4. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is is one of those verses that we quote all the time. We may not know where it's at, but it's just simple little quotes. Sean quoted a piece from it this morning. I did. Um, we do all the time. James chapter 4, starting in verse 6. But he gives greater peace, or gives greater grace. We say that all the time. Oh, it's tough, but God gives greater grace. And he does. It's good that it's written here. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We would quote that one, right? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It goes on to say, submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's another one that we quote, right? And then it says, draw near to God. Sean said it this morning. I said it. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then the very next thing, we don't, we don't quote as often or ever. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. And then if you can, I want you to circle or put a square or underline the word you double-minded. You double-minded. In other words, they're describing someone that is not solid in his heart or her heart about the one thing. Cleanse your hands, purify your heart, you who is not solid about what your pursuit is, what your view of God is, and what that one thing is that... Um, that uh, set your mind, your, uh, your heart on thing, the thing you have your heart set on. It made me think of another place in James where it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A someone who's double-minded, who, who, who's not able to focus on the one thing, but is split attention, he's unstable. He's unable to, um, the NLT says it this way, their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unstable in everything they do. Makes me think of what Jesus said. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Scripture says that we are the house of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if I am divided in my heart, in my head, in that one thing, what's going to be difficult for me is to, who may ascend to the holy hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His presence? Surely not a double-minded man. You guys hear what I'm saying? It's that one thing that gets us there and we are able to stand in his presence and to see the Lord. Um, Psalms 51.9, we're very familiar with it. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit. That's a, that's a spirit of pursuing. That is a spirit of focus and aim. And this is where I'm going. Like Paul said, the one thing I do, I set my, my mind on things above. <clears throat> Excuse me. He goes on to say, do not cast me from your presence. In other words, don't take the ability to see you away from me. Proverbs 16, 2. People may think of their ways, that their ways are pure, but motives 
heart, that one thing is weighed by the Lord. Purity is an internal pursuit that begins with the heart. Listen, you can try to address righteousness, purity, all these things in your life, but if your heart has not set itself on that one thing, all of the other efforts are in vain. It comes back to that foundational thing. Where is your heart at? That one thing. The next thing I wanted to point out is that purity is an external display. It's an internal pursuit, but it's an external display. In other words, the pure heart extends to the hand. My, once my heart is, is solid on what it needs to be and where it needs to be, that will naturally, in most cases, extend to the hand. In other words, uh, my actions, my deeds. What my, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's just another way of saying cleansing the hands symbolizes external behavior. Peter talks about that in his first letter. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior. In other words, not just in your heart, not just in, your, in you know, what's going on. Don't just claim to have this. But in your behavior, be holy, be clean, be pure. Uh, be pure. And that, that certainly goes all the way to your thoughts, you know. Um, thoughts is an in, more of an internal thing. But to me, um, it's not as foundational as what have I set my heart on to begin with. If I've set my heart on that, my, my thoughts, those internal things that people can't see and hear, those are going to adjust too. So I don't want to just talk about thoughts. You just need to have clean thoughts. You need to have a pure heart and pursue that one thing. Your thoughts will definitely come in line and so will the works of your hands, your actions. Now there's an obscure verse in Job, verse 17, 9. We don't read Job that much. When we do, we kind of get discouraged and move on. <laughs> I don't want to read the rest of that. What if it happened to me? But in verse 9 of chapter 17, it says, and I love this. So write that down. I think it may be up on the deal. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to his way. The righteous will hold to his way. In other words, that one thing, wherever his heart is, what he has his heart set on, the righteous will hold to that one thing, hold to his way. And he who has clean hands, listen to this, will grow stronger and stronger. In other words, his ability to get there will increase. My wife says something to young mothers when their kids are having a hard time to sleep. Man, if you can just get them to sleep, what do you got to do? Just, even you got to drug them up. Just get them to sleep. No, she never says that. Anyway. <laughs> but one of the things she says, and you've experienced this, mothers, is when your kid finally starts sleeping good, they start really sleeping good. Why? Because sleep begets sleep. You ever notice that, Mom? When they finally do get to sleep, they're like, oh, this feels great, and they start sleeping a lot. Well, something I want to tell you this morning is that obedience begets obedience. When you, are, when you obey, when you walk in obedience, it starts reproducing itself. itself. It starts snowballing because obedience, there's reward, there's victory. If nothing else, uh, an internal conscience is clear. I, I did it, and I love that feeling, and so next time I'm going to obey, obey as well. He who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. My wife has said for years, too, a right action will change a wrong feeling. In other words, whenever I don't really feel like doing the right thing, I don't want to do this, I don't want... Well, you know what? If you'll just do it, your attitude will probably change towards it. But something I want you to write down is this. Doing what is right reinforces a heart to obey. Doing what is right reinforces that heart. Remember, it starts with the heart. That internal purity, that internal pursuit. And whenever we, it comes time to the external 
pursuit, that ex- external display, if we will just do it, it reinforces and it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Some of you know that you are stronger believers today in walking with the Lord than you were a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. If you're not, check your consistency of obedience and your one thing motive, where your heart has been. Doing what is right reinforces the heart to obey. And the last thing, and this is obvious, but purity is an eternal reward. Purity is an internal pursuit, an external display, but it's also an eternal reward. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. In other words, when we pass away, we know that when he appears, or when he appears or when we, when we are um, when he comes or when we, either when we die or when he appears, whichever comes first. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. It says right here, we will be like him. Well, how is he? He's a lot of things, but one of the things we know is that he's holy. He's pure. We don't know exactly what we're going to be like. Will we have big ears? Will I have, finally have big pecs? You know, I don't know. But he says one thing that we do know is that we will be like him. And you can list all the things, but at the top of the list is always holy. We will be pure. And then the next thing he says, because we will see him just as he is. Isn't that the goal? So we want to see him now. We can see him now, and we will see him then. Titus 2.11, verse 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age while on this earth, while living this life, looking for the blessed hope. In other words, pursuing that one thing, pursuing the blessed hope and the appearing of the Lord Jesus or our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, to see God who gave himself for us to redeem us from, the, uh, from every lawless deed. And the purity of himself a, and to purify himself a people for his own possession. And look what it says. Zealous for good deeds. So it talks about a purifying, an internal thing, and a zealous for good deeds, an external thing. Pursuing with passion that one thing, beginning with the heart, extending to the hands. And one of these days, we will be with him and receive that reward. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, eagerly pursue. In other words, that one thing, climb towards peace and holiness. Not just inside holiness, not just outside holiness, both and with which no one, without which no one will see the Lord. Eagerly pursue peace and holiness with all, without which no one will see the Lord. If there's one thing else I would want you to write, it's that purity produces peace. Purity is an eternal reward, produces peace. And Hebrews 10 kind of wraps it up, verse 10. What God wants, is for us is, wants for us is to be made holy. And then he gives us the way that's possible. By the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so you're going back to Matthew. At the very end of chapter 23, look there real quick. Verse 37, and I'll close with this. Verse 37, Matthew, this is right after the eight woes. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who uh, are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. 
You were unwilling. Look what he says next. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then this is, look what he says. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees, but then he extends this thing to all of Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was following the Pharisees. They had, they had sunk down into this pharisaical form of godliness, and they weren't receiving Jesus, which we know. He came to his own, his own received him not. Look what he says. You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is talking about last day stuff, end time stuff, when Israel will come back, when, when it will all work out for Israel in the end. But listen, this is, this is for us today, too. Because you are at a place where maybe you are not seeing the Lord. And so you can apply this, I believe. You are not going to see the Lord until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus isn't just some guy that I show up and center a little bit of song and dance around on Sunday mornings. But blessed him, affirming that he is the Lord, that he is the Messiah. The very thing that the Pharisees would not do. I am affirming that you are the one and I am making you my one thing. Until you do that, you will not see me. Amen? Let's stand.